For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Four volunteers with the Migrant Humanitarian Aid Group No More Deaths are on trial. Why photographing Bears Ears National Monument in Utah has become a passion for a retired astronomer living in Senoida. Meet author and futurist Thomas Thwaites, who decided one day to take a break from being human by becoming a goat. And looking back 60 years to the times when Martin Luther King Jr. visited Tucson. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This week, the trial of four volunteers with the migrant aid group No More Deaths started in federal court. Five more volunteers are going to stand trial in the coming weeks. These volunteers have been hiking to remote deserts along the Arizona-Mexico border to leave water and food for migrants who are traveling through those deserts to cross the border illegally. Since 2001, medical and law enforcement officials have found the remains of almost 4,000 individuals in southern Arizona and northern Mexico. Nancy Montoya reports the battle is between legal and moral issues. Anita Terigny and Jerry Hamill have on their walking shoes. Well, we're out here in the neighborhoods around Tucson trying to distribute uh, humanitarian aid signs for no more deaths. Now, you may have seen those yard signs around town with the message that humanitarian aid is never a crime. What's behind this latest uh, push to get signs out has to do with an upcoming trial. Some of the No More Deaths volunteers have been um, cited with crimes uh, for providing humanitarian aid in the desert. At issue are charges against nine No More Death volunteers who entered the protected Southern Arizona Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge without the proper permits. Eight of the volunteers are facing three misdemeanor charges each for trespassing and littering. Now, they may seem like minor charges since the infractions carry minimum penalties if the volunteers are found guilty. But the outcome of these cases could have a major impact on how and where No More Deaths volunteers distribute food and water and medical attention to migrants traveling on foot through some of the most hostile desert terrain in the world. Community, local, and even international support for the group is extensive. That was evident the Saturday before the first trial began as supporters packed Southside Presbyterian Church to hear the Reverend Allison Harrington give a blessing to the effort. And we will not stand by silently as observers as they target and prosecute and persecute the work of humanitarian aid. But we will be alongside you knocking on doors, showing up in court, making phone calls, anything that we can do. And it is never, ever, 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 ever a crime. But trespassing and interfering with the work of Border Patrol is a crime. And at the end of the day, we're a country uh, that's governed by laws. That's the view of Tucson Sector Border Patrol Chief Rudy Karish. At a recent news conference, he talked about those who have made the decision to cross into the U.S. without the proper documentation. 
and to choose to cross in one of the most deadly areas in the U.S.-Mexico border. I want everybody to understand that crossing uh, in between these uh, uh, ports of entry out here on the border can be very dangerous. Lots of people lose their lives every year because they, uh, they trek across that desert, so that's not the right way. That may be the case, says Reverend Harrington, but humanitarian workers are not looking at the right or wrong of U.S. immigration laws. They are focused on saving lives in the desert. No more deaths. The Samaritans, Derechos Humanos, and other migrant aid groups say they are following another law, God's law. The holy work of saving lives in our precious desert. And that's why Anita Tarigny, one of the many volunteers distributing yard signs, says that regardless of the verdict, the work along the desert by humanitarian groups will continue. And it's our strong belief as a couple that humanitarian aid is never a crime. The Reverend Allison Harrington. And so today, whether you walk on sidewalks, through neighborhoods, or through our desert, whether the gift you carry in your hands is water or yard signs, may there be a chorus that arises from your work. Humanitarian aid is never a crime. Humanitarian aid is never a crime. Humanitarian aid is never a crime. The trials will continue over the next couple of months. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. The Obama administration established Bears Ears National Monument in southern Utah in 2016. Just a year later, the Trump administration reduced the size of the monument by 85 percent, losing more than 200,000 acres in the process. Next, an interview with retired Harvard and National Optical Observatory astronomer and photographer Stephen E. Strom, who now lives in Sonoida. To date, he's released 10 collections of fine art photographs. The latest is Bears Ears, Views from a Sacred Land. Strom will participate in an event called Reflections about Bears Ears at the Arizona State Museum next week. I asked him how his connection with this special place came to be. It began a long time ago in the early 1980s. Uh, I was working at the National Optical Astronomy Observatory here in Tucson, and a graduate student at Stewart Observatory told me that he had been doing some teaching on the Navajo Reservation over the summer, and that was something that appealed to my late wife Karen and me in that we had been photographing up there for a while but felt that we ought to give something back to the landscape. Bottom line is I spent two summers teaching uh, at uh, what was then called Navajo Community College, now called Denek College in uh, Tse Arizona. And it was from Tse that I took off to, uh, we took off to explore the, the area around Bears Ears. To what degree was the importance of Bears Ears position as a Native American sacred place resonant with you and on your mind while you were exploring that area? It certainly came to, to be foremost on my mind when Rebecca Robinson and I began our work almost five years ago now. But it was during uh, the time uh, post-2014 uh, that the concept of Bears Ears uh, came to be uh, the Zuni Hopi, Navajo, Ute Mountain Ute, and Winta and uh, Ure Ute uh, came to, uh, together to form the Bears Ears uh, Intertribal Coalition. 
It was then that uh, we began to focus on the efforts of the tribes to gain a voice in managing lands which had both been uh, their past ancestral uh, lands and uh, to which even today they hold strong cultural connection. We were also interested in uh, those who uh, opposed uh, the monument. We wanted to understand their point of view. And what we discovered was that uh, despite uh, the very different views regarding uh, the protection of Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service land, uh, the uh, Anglo-Mormons and the natives actually both hold the land to be culturally significant uh, and, in their minds, sacred, although they would differ in, in their definition of the word sacred. Well, in addition to the, the vistas and the vast spaces that you capture in your photographs, you are also documenting human habitation in that area and signs that uh, people have left behind in the forms of petroglyphs and paintings on the rocks. Uh, tell me about what it's like when you come across something like that, when you make uh, for yourself the discovery of these areas where people have left evidence of their presence. Well, it's truly remarkable. There are the area has been inhabited for at least 8,000 years. Uh, let me take the, the Comb Ridge. Virtually every canyon carved into the Comb Ridge uh, holds evidence of past occupation from houses that are uh, built into the side of the uh, canyon walls to petroglyphs, pictographs. Uh, uh, you might find storage bins. And it is truly remarkable as you as you walk up those canyons to suddenly be become aware almost at the edge of your perception uh, that uh, somebody had been there. And you look up and there in a crevice, maybe 100 or 200 feet uh, above, above you, uh, is evidence of, of folks who managed to live successfully in an extraordinarily harsh environment. Well, then share with us your reaction when you heard about the reduction of the National Monument. Uh, I've heard over 201,000 acres were declassified, so to speak. Well, originally the tribes comprising the Bearsers Intertribal Coalition had proposed protection of 1.9 million acres based on their assessment of where cultural artifacts uh, were found uh, in the area around Bears Ears. After listening to the concerns of folks local to the Bears Ears area, then Secretary of the Interior Sally Jewell, along with the Obama administration, reduced the tribe's original request of 1.9 million acres of protection to 1.35. President Trump, uh, at the end of 2017, reduced that by, as you say, 85% to only a few hundred thousand uh, acres, uh, leaving out a very large area uh, that uh, is filled with artifacts that provide clues to the evolution of civilization on the, on the Colorado Plateau. So to answer your question directly, it was very discouraging to, to, to see that. Well, you mentioned the coalition of five Native American tribes, as well as many concerned Utahns who would like to see Bears Ears preserved and protected. Um, is there any positive movement that we can share with our listeners that you're aware of right now to help protect those lands? Right now, 
where things stand is as follows. There are multiple organizations challenging President Trump's reduction. Second, um, uh, there was an effort to have the court-challenged move from Washington, D.C. to Utah. That challenge was rejected. Currently, it's expected that sometime between a year from now and perhaps five or six years from now, there will be a decision forthcoming. It may even get as high as the Supreme Court. Uh, I think one of the things that I would like to see happen uh, for all public lands disputes uh, is to find ways to identify common ground, which is very difficult to do once uh, environmental groups decide that uh, an area is worthy of protection, uh, and folks who view those groups uh, and the federal government with suspicion go to their corner. Uh, it's very difficult to begin conversations. I think they need to begin early. They need to begin small. It takes time to build trust, and by time I don't mean weeks or months. It takes years to, to build the kind of trust that's needed. But there is a tremendous amount of common ground if people would only talk in the landscape under the stars and surrounded by red rock. Stephen E. Strom's collection of photographs is Bears Ears, Views from a Sacred Land from the University of Arizona Press. Strom and his granddaughter, Rebecca Robinson, a journalist and author, will be appearing at an event called Reflections About Bears Ears on Wednesday, January 23rd at 7 p.m. at the Arizona State Museum. The event is free and open to the public. While we all need a holiday once in a while, it's safe to say that few of us would consider the kind of holiday that Thomas Thwaites took. The author and futurist, who teaches at the Rhode Island School of Design, decided to escape the tribulations of modern human life by slowing down, taking it easy, learning to walk on all fours, and enjoy the natural taste of grass. Thomas Thwaites temporarily transformed himself into a goat. Well, sort of. Here he is to explain. Well, actually, first, my original plan was to become an elephant. Basically, the whole becoming something um, came from a sort of dissatisfaction with my human life, I suppose. A particular time in my life when I was a little bit kind of downtrodden, perhaps, money, relationships, work, not going very well, family, not going very well, and I happened to be dog-sitting, like looking after my niece's dog, and this dog is just a joyous, happy animal, doesn't have any of these human worries, and I had that thought, which I think lots of people have when they look at their pets, um, which is, oh, you're so lucky, look at you there, just happy, kind of mucking around, um, sort of doing nothing. One thing that occurs to me, Thomas, is that the things that make us human are the wiring in our heads yeah. more so than, say, our thumbs or our erect walking posture or anything like that. So in attempting to make this transition and to take this vacation, did you find yourself having to confront your own wiring? Yes, very much so. I mean, like any other kind of design project, how could I possibly achieve this impossible dream, doing research, talking to people, making prosthetics and trying to break the problem down 
like the mind, you know, what makes a human mind different from a goat's mind. Um, and so I went and spoke to neuroscientists and goat behavioral psychologists and sort of, you know, said, oh, I'm trying to become a goat. How can I, like, become a goat? <laughs> and um, so the goat behavioral psychologist, Queen Mary University in London, kind of boiled it down to this idea of storytelling and language, um, you know, basically imagining stories and then being able to tell people about them. Okay, well, how am I going to turn off these kind of particular abilities in my mind? A neuroscientist who works with transcranial magnetic stimulation, Professor Joe Devlin at University College London, I pested him for a while. That's what I did quite a lot in this project, pested academics. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so I needed to learn how to walk on four legs. And I needed to make some prosthetics, which would let me revert to a sort of four-legged anatomy. And so how uncomfortable was that in application? Uh, it was very uncomfortable, I should say. In my fantasy of, like, just running free across the hillsides as a goat, I'd kind of pictured it as a wonderful escape. So I could stay in goat form like maybe an hour before sort of having to like sit down. I mean, goats sit down, right? They sort of, you know, occasionally lie down or whatever. So I could kind of clomp along for about an hour, maybe less even, depending on the terrain. So I've seen a couple of photos, Thomas, and we'll have those on the webpage for people to go and look. Were there any other physical modifications that you needed to achieve to reach goatdom? So I had an artificial rumen, which I uh, strapped to my torso. And the idea was that I could take a mouthful of grass, chew it up, and then spit it into one side of this rumen. And then it would kind of go through and be kind of fermented. And then I could suck out this fermented grass mixture and then swallow it from the other side of the, the rumen. What in the world was that like? <laughs> that was pretty disgusting. I mean, the whole project in a way was painful and disgusting and uncomfortable but interesting nonetheless <laughs> okay so how did you choose a population of goats to infiltrate what was on your mind as you looked for your new friends and neighbors i thought it would be nice to cross the alps as a goat um and so i contacted a goat farmer um in the alps in the swiss alps and had a strange email back and forth and then turned up one day to, and said, can I live with your goats? And he said, okay, uh, which was nice. So these were domesticated goats who therefore were, you know, familiar with human beings. Yeah, I'm not sure if they took me as a human being. I, I think at the beginning, they definitely didn't take me as a goat. But eventually, I like to think that we kind of you know, I was almost became part of the herd. I mean, that's what the goat farmer, when I was leaving, he said that he thought the goats had accepted me into the herd. So um, goats are social animals. And yeah, they do have a, a hierarchy. So they'll have the top goat in a group, um, and then a pecking order. And one of the reasons why I thought that maybe I'd kind of been accepted into the herd was there was a moment when I thought I was going to have to, like, kind of butt heads, basically have a kind of uh, fight to 
determine where I was in the pecking order. Were you prepared for that kind of uh, eventuality? Um, not really. I was wearing a kind of bicycle helmet. Um, it's very different when you're at eye level to very powerful animal which has got horns um, because suddenly you realize those things are weapons and they're very good for stabbing you in the neck or knocking you off the side of a mountain. Um, so <laughs> basically I was, I think I was like the lowest of the low in this herd of goats because uh, yeah, I had to run away. The University of Arizona Museum of Art presents Thomas Thwaites speaking on Becoming a Goat and Other Adventures in Science and Technology on Thursday, January 24th at the Center for Creative Photography. There's a link to RSVP on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. In the six and a half years that he's been writing the column Street Smarts for the Arizona Daily Star, David Layton has uncovered some fascinating Tucson history. Next, Leighton tells me about two visits to Tucson by a legendary American that are remembered fondly by those who were there. Well, they had uh, recently named a street, M.L. King Jr. Way, um, over on Park Avenue and 36th Street. And that kind of got me interested in seeing if there was any history uh, related to Martin Luther King in Tucson, because now we have a street named after him. So that's what began kind of the search. Uh, he visited uh, Tucson in 1959 and in 1962 as well. Who hosted uh, Martin Luther King when he visited Tucson? He spoke at what's now called Centennial Hall. And it was actually Mary Jeffries who was in charge of the Sunday evening forum that invited King to come talk in Tucson. So he was invited to talk about civil rights, not to talk to a church audience. Correct. He uh, gave a speech called It's a Great Time to Be Alive. Um, the audience was mostly activists and U of A individuals. Um, surprisingly, uh, there was a couple people that, um, that I did locate uh, that were alive and actually remembered him coming to Tucson. Jackie Price Barnes uh, was a little girl at the time, but she remembered listening to him and was impressed by him. And eventually her mother brought her and her brother down to meet uh, Martin Luther King and to get an autograph as well. Um, afterwards, it was a get-together uh, at the U of A Student Union, and he met a guy named Reverend Casper Glenn, uh, who was reverend of the Southside Presbyterian Church. Um, they talked, and uh, Dr. King was very impressed with the fact that he had a multiracial church. Uh, was not common where he was from, from Alabama, um, to have a multiracial church. And so... Uh, they agreed to meet the next day, and Reverend Glenn was going to take him down to the uh, Southside Presbyterian Church over there on West 23rd Street and kind of just show him his uh, church and, you know, photographs of his congregation. And at the time, uh, the Southside Presbyterian Church uh, was predominantly Papago Indian, what we call Tono Autumn Indian at this point. Um, Dr. King uh, stated that he had actually never been to an Indian reservation in his whole life and never had a chance to meet anyone who was what we've referred to as Indian or Native American now. And he actually asked Reverend Glenn if he would take him to visit the reser Indian reservation. In your article, you portray Dr. Martin Luther King as being very interested in listening and learning. Reverend Glenn recalled when I interviewed him that uh, Dr. King was very kind of careful about what questions he asked. 
Um, he did not want to offend them. He also did not want to show his lack of knowledge of their tribal heritage. Um, so Dr. King did a lot of listening. Um, they met with the chairman of the tribe, uh, Enos Francisco Jr., um, also the police chief, George Norris, and Henry Throssell, I believe is how you pronounce the name there. So he had an opportunity with some of the, with the true leaders of the tribe. Um, they also enjoyed a soda and something called chuchuma. Uh, which I've been told by uh, Donald Harvey, who's the chief justice of the Otham Nation, that that's a kind of like a tortilla type of bread. Um, so he actually, uh, Reverend Glenn actually remembered the name of it, Chuchuma, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So what about the second visit? Uh, what brought Dr. Martin Luther King back to Tucson? He was also brought here um, by Mary Jeffries of the Sunday Evening Forum. Uh, for a second visit. This was 1962. Um, There's quite a bit of stuff going on at the time as far as uh, civil rights in Tucson. Um, Tucson was desegregating its eating locations. Um, so I think that might have played into the fact that he came back a second time just because there was some stuff going on at that point. I was really interested to see that one of the sources that you talked to for your article was David Yetman. Well, you know, I had a chance to uh, sit down with uh, David Yetman, interview him. Um, he was actually in the choir um, of the Catalina United Methodist Church, uh, which is located over there on Speedway. I think it's about Tucson Boulevard around that area there. Um, he was actually a student at the U of A at the time when Dr. King uh, showed up. So it was pretty interesting. He had a chance to... Uh, eat lunch with him after Dr. King's speech, and then he actually drove him, uh, Dr. King, back to the Santa Rita Hotel. So he had, a, he had a small part, but he got to meet with him and got to listen to his speech and stuff like that. So it was kind of interesting that um, a little bit of a local celebrity, you know, known for the Desert Speaks, and also in the Americas with David Yetman, and he was also a Pima County supervisor at one point as well. Of the probably thousands of speeches that Dr. King gave, uh, these speeches that he gave in Tucson no longer exist. But I understand you were able to find some quotes from his first visit in 1959, and I was wondering if you'd share one of those with us, David. Definitely. Um, one thing he said that was, segregation is a festering sore, a cancer. It stifles the soul of the nation. We are not looking for an advantage, which would keep the same old problem. Black supremacy would be as bad as white supremacy but we seek equality of all races. We are not seeking racial equality just to combat communism, but because such equality is right. David Layton's Street Smarts column runs the first Monday of every month in the Arizona Daily Star. This weekend, the Tucson Musicians Museum will present a concert in honor of Martin Luther King Jr., featuring songs from the civil rights movement performed by more than a dozen local artists. It's happening Sunday, January 20th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Leo Rich Theater at 260 South Church. TucsonMusiciansMuseum.org has the information. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.